everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail! Yeah! This is the podcast <laughs> where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. I write for The Rap. I write for Slash Film. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I contribute to Slash Film. Uh, for the purposes of this particular podcast, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. You needn't. This is something I came up, uh, come up, came up with on a whim, but you might hear me say that name occasionally as we read letters, and that would be why. Very, very, very few people ever get to choose their own nickname. Whitney did, and he chose Rockmeister McCool. I, I don't do... And I think it was something I just made up in the moment. It wasn't like something I've been had been hanging on to since I was a young child. If, if I'm being perfectly honest, there was an excellent chance I'm part of that. I can't really remember the exact incident in which we... I think it was on the air, though. I think it was a joke that kind of spiraled yeah, out of control. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, here we are. Uh, this is where you can email us or send us a piece of physical mail, and we'll read it on the air, and we'll answer your questions, and we'll talk about whatever you want us to talk about. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Yeah, you can send us a piece of physical mail, if you wish. Send it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And if you want to game the system and make sure that your correspondence is read on the air, the best way to do that is to send us a piece of physical mail. Because if you go to that extra uh, extra level, if you go to that extra effort, uh, we'll make sure we start uh, the podcast with your mail. And we have a few uh, pieces of correspondence that were in the inbox this week. Uh, That's right. And I'm very, very excited. Uh, and, and unusually, uh, usually Whitney reads all the mail. Ordinarily, yes. This time, through a series of events that we didn't really plan out, I've got the the physical mail from the P.O. box with me, and we have to record this episode remotely, uh, and Whitney doesn't. So these opening bits of correspondence, whether you like it or not, I will be reading them. Someone out well, there is annoyed. Get Someone to, out there is like, ah, enjoy, enjoy more of William's oper beautiful operatic voice. All right, uh, so uh, here we go. I'm going to start with the first uh, piece of correspondence. This is in our uh, inbox. Uh, and uh, it is from No Name. Hmm. If you don't sign your name at the bottom, hmm. we assume that we you don't want your name right on the air, so we just say it's from Redacted. All right, here we go. Your P.O. Box fee is due by the last day of the month. Your P.O. Box will be closed if the fee is not paid by the due date. If the fee is not paid within 10 days after the due date, a late payment charge will apply. You may make payment okay. by any of the convenient options noted on the inside top portion of this envelope. Well, you know, that's well, not that's a really most... interesting question. Yeah. Um, so I, I would recommend the Battle of Algiers. That's your solution uh, to everything. Uh, <laughs> Anyone could just stop and watch the Battle of Algiers. I don't think anybody could go wrong that with that. Mm. Um, <laughs> we, we need to pay a mailbox fee. Get off. <laughs> we need to get on that. Uh, anyway, that was. But we say we'll read anything, and by God, I proved that true. Okay, here we go. You know what? Here's here's something. Uh, even when you have a PO box, mm. you still get like mail from the previous tenants. Every once in a while, uh, and tenant, it, it, it's mostly junk mail. mail. Like we get like a J.C. catalog once in a while. Yeah, but but for a second there, whoever like had our mailbox before us mm. subscribed to some kind of weird like ultra right wing gun collector magazine. Oh, weird! It was all about like you know, and, and here's why Obama is terrible, and here's oh, why man. Joe Biden is terrible, and here's why you know it was just. I had never seen anything quite like that before, like in the physical world. And those were showing up on our P.O. box for a short while. Mm. It, it stopped. So I guess, you know, whoever it was canceled their subscription. Okay. Uh, here we go. Here we go. Uh, this is our, this is an actual piece of mail. Uh, this is from Robert and it's a postcard and it says, greetings from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm going to show this to Whitney so he can oh, okay. get a gander. And it reads as follows, Dear Critically Acclaimed, During the last month, I've done a lot of traveling for my job, and I finished it off with a trip to Nashville. While my air travel... Uh, during my air travel, I got to catch up on films from this year. I saw Air, Fast X, Kandahar, 
John Wick 4 and The Wrath of Becky. Yay, Wrath of Becky. My question oh, I is, I really like the Becky movies. Those movies are great. Uh, my question is, are there any 2023 films that you plan to catch up on? Uh, with a PS, are there any films that take place in Nashville or the state of Tennessee that you both recommend people seeing? I mean, you, you, you kind of tossed it underhand. Uh, Robert Altman's Nashville. Yeah, if you haven't seen Nashville, then you should definitely see Nashville, but I'm guessing that's sort of, Mm. I think that's like required viewing in Tennessee schools, like they show it to kids in in like the ninth grade, like you have to see that movie. Well, it's also Um, one of the best movies ever made. It's like a staggering achievement in drama, and one of the really neat things about Nashville is that it's a movie that's about like a whole bunch of people on their lives sort of intertwining in Nashville at the same time. And a lot yeah. of them, because Nashville's a big music town, a lot of the characters are musicians, and Robert Altman had the actors write the music that their characters wrote. Uh, and um, uh, it, was Ke- it was Keith Carradine, uh, who played a country music singer. He wrote a song called I'm Easy, which is A, an amazing song, and B, won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Right. So th- I just think that's really, really neat. But... Um, I don't know about other movies set in Nashville. Wasn't there a I know, River Phoenix movie? I know those Walking movie? Tall movies are set... The Walking Tall movies are set in Nashville. Um, no, they're not set in Nashville because they're set in a small town. Or they're not, not in Nashville. They're set in, they're set in Tennessee. Excuse yeah. me, not Nashville. What was, um, what, and I know hmm. Cocaine Bear is set in Tennessee. Um, I'm trying there, to think of like... There's a country music uh, movie Other with movies River that Phoenix I know for sure drive, are set I'm in Tennessee. I'm looking it up. It's driving me nuts. Hang on. Um... River Phoenix. It was one of the later things that he did. Uh, it was. It was. I think it was the last film he finished. Uh, it was called The Thing Called Love. Uh, okay. I, th- I think it takes place in Nashville, but it stars River Phoenix and Samantha Mathis and Sandra Bullock. It's a, and it's a, a uh, Peter Bogdanovich movie. Yeah, right? and it's pretty good. I haven't seen it in a long time, okay. but it's a solid film. Um, oh, you know what's said hmm. in said in Tennessee hmm. that you would love. That everyone should watch. Hmm. Uh, Leningrad Cowboys Go America, set mostly in Tennessee. Uh, I don't know if it's mostly, but yeah, a big chunk of it is, and that's one of my that's yeah. all one of my favorite movies. That movie is an absolute delight. <laughs> Leningrad uh, Cowboys Go America is wonderful. Yeah, it's 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 the it's the Blues Brothers for the people who are too cool to watch the Blues Brothers. Yeah, there you go. Um, and as for your other question, is there anything that we're planning to catch up with? Uh, oh at the God, end of the so year. much. I, I've <laughs> caught up with quite a few things. I've been trying. Um, and I'm yeah. trying to think uh, what some of those uh, were. I, ra- I watched Asteroid City, which I missed when it came out, and that is that is a wonderful okay. film. Uh, I absolutely adored it. Um, let's see. see uh, it's, it is kind of fun because you, you and I were, you know, we belong to, like, critics groups, and mm. we vote in year-end awards. And we, we've mentioned this before, we've complained about this before, mm. but uh, they always expect you to have watched all of the movies uh, of from the year by, like, late November or early December at the latest, so you yeah. can vote in these awards. And that means the month of November is just this deluge of movies, so many films that you have to catch up on, and we can't. We just can't catch up on all of them. It's just there's no, there aren't enough hours in the day. Yeah, it's literally impossible. So, but we try. And you know, throughout throughout the year, you know, you can't see everything. We try. We try to see as many as we can. We mm. try to see the high profile ones or the ones that we think might be interesting to talk about. Mm. So uh, yeah, there's a bunch I haven't seen that I really wanted to. I really wanted to see Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Oh, I caught up with that one. Uh, that movie's amazing. That's a great movie. Yeah, I kept hearing yeah. that one was really really yeah. good. Um, I um, have the been... one I wanted mm. I wanted to see both of the new Japanese Shin movies that came out this year because I haven't seen Shin Ultraman or Shin Kamen Rider. Oh yeah, those are um, Shin Ultraman in particular is one of my favorite films from the last year. Uh, I don't know if it's going to make my top ten or not because a lot of really good stuff came out towards the end but Sheen Ultraman's great and Sheen Kamen Rider's really really fun too uh, I have been wanting to see a couple of movies that I just it, it, they didn't seem like a priority at the time and I knew I could get to them later and over the course of the year they've built up a certain sort of cultiness people really enjoyed them even though they weren't apparently great and that's Renfield and The Pope's Exorcist uh, okay which both I, sounds I like really fun movies I'm, I'm saving those really? for like dessert after I've watched like all the big stuff I'm just gonna uh, watch those too. I've also heard really good things from 
it kind of came and went and i think the conversation about it was kind of all about you know oh sex comedies are back uh but i've talked to some people who actually saw no hard feelings and were really kind of thoughtful about it and actually thought it was really good okay uh and so mm. based on the uh, recommendations of a few critics who i trust uh, i am going to check out no hard feelings at some point so okay yeah, yeah. There, there was a couple um there was a new um What's his name? Uh, a Chinese documentarian mm. who um, who made this really wonderful like five hour film. Uh, I think it was, it was called like Life parentheses. Or it was called Youth. Is what oh it was yeah. Called. Yeah, um, I know. Exactly I wanted that. to see Youth. I wanted to see the new Frederick Wiseman movie. Um, mm. I wanted to see All Dirt Roads Taste of Salt. I heard that was a good one. Mm. Um, I wanted to see uh, A Thousand and One. There were all these like, really wonderful, smaller movies that I kept hearing so many wonderful things about from the critics I admire, and just they all slipped slip past me i just never had the tan the time to i'm lucky so, uh, I, I i get to participate in the uh, los angeles <laughs> film critics association awards and this is the first year in a long time that they did it in person and the first year i ever got to do it in person and one of the things that's cool about that is you know we announced like the winners but you get to hear the movies that like everyone like the, the random movie that people throw in just because they don't want it not to get any votes even though uh -huh. they know it's not going to win, but I like this movie. Damn it, I'm voting for this. Uh, and okay. also the movies that have like a surprising amount of support, and you're like, oh shit, I, this, I should not have missed that. Uh, so there's a couple <laughs> of films uh, I, I'm going to uh, be catching up on. Uh, in particular, yeah, a film yeah. called Totem, uh, which is apparently fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So Totem, um, I still have to see all of us strangers. Um, oh, so th good. yeah. There's there's a lot of uh, I, I you uh, recommended a really wonderful movie um, on our last uh, film review podcast called The Taste of Things, which sounds really good. Um, I wanted to see that BlackBerry movie because I saw the other all the other corporate movies that came out this year. Yeah, somehow that's the one I missed, and that's the one that's like the most acclaimed, which mm. is funny. Um, but anyway, um, anyway, I hope that that answers your question. Let's move on to another letter here. Yeah, you got. We, we got a couple actual physical letters. So we cool. got we got three, I think total, not counting our our bill. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Get to hear me unfold it. Ooh, it's a long one. Okay. Yeah, really, really crinkle the paper. People need to know I that we're. A, okay. We actually have their their letters in our hands. Okay, uh, this is from Ron, uh, in Spokane, Washington. Uh, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Hey guys. I've been listening for quite hey. a few years and finally decided to write a letter. I've been working from home for almost, for almost four years now, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I had a huge backlog of episodes, and just want to thank you guys for keeping me company and for the hours and hours of entertainment uh, to get me through my work days. Thank you. I'm glad that's why we're here. Uh, I recently listened to the Iron List on non-traditional Christmas movies, and I loved all your picks. I hadn't seen a few of them, and I immediately watched It Happened One Christmas, and it was a fun watch. Uh, that was the uh, uh, TV remake of It's a Wonderful Life with Marlo Thomas in the James Stewart role. Mm. Uh, which yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's not as good as the original, but I'm fond of it. Um I'm so glad uh, you picked Lady in. The, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad you picked Lady in the Lake. I've been an Audrey Totter fan since I saw that on TCM a few years ago. Uh, rather than give you a full top ten list, I have a few Christmas films I wanted to mention. Whit Stillman's Metropolitan would be on my list. Ooh, that's a good choice. Oh, that, that that's a good movie. I, I should have like, thought I like, of that. I like Whit Stillman a lot. Same. I wish Whit Stillman would make movies more often. Same Uh This is one of my favorite films. I actually really like Barcelona and The Last Days of Disco as well. Uh, I've showed Metropolitan to a few friends and some of my family over the years, and no one has liked it. I guess I get that it's not for everyone. I just enjoy how it is set at Christmas and gives you the New York the New York City Christmas vibes without being over the top. That is a shame that no one you've shown that movie likes it. I've had a pretty good experience introducing Whit Stillman to people. Uh, Barcelona was mm. the first one I saw, uh, and well, I think I, I loved it. And I've introduced a few people, and and usually they go, oh, it kind of grew on me. I kind of liked it. I'm like, okay, that's fair. I can't really do much beyond that. But I think. Um, the best gateway uh, to Whit Stillman is probably Damsels in Distress. Damsels in Distress. Uh, 
I, I guess I think you have to be on Whit Stillman's wavelength, though. Mm. Well, I just think uh, I, I would say yeah. I would say Love and Friendship because that's just a fun comedy. Mm. Um, that would be like your gateway into Whit Stillman, perhaps. Perhaps, but uh, um, yeah. I, I think the issue with Whit Stillman is you know you discover him while you're probably you know moving out of whatever you were into as an adolescent, like mm. you were into maybe genre films or a certain kind of film like you were really uh focusing on your your particular interest and when you hit your early 20s like just after college that generally speaking tends to be a time when you start to explore a little bit you start yeah. to reach out you start to look for movies that you had never heard of before mm-hmm. and that's when you stumble into Whit Stillman he's the, you're kind of an independent filmmaker he's a little bit of a an outsider voice and the problem with that is all of his films are making fun of post-college assholes yeah <laughs> um so you might be just the right age to see Whit Stillman, but unless you understand that, you know, he's kind of making fun of you a little bit and you deserve it a little bit, uh, then you're, you might not find yourself enjoying his films as much as you might. All right, fair enough. We, we, he, uh, we, there are some more uh, recommendations here. Uh, the second okay. film is a movie I grew up on called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. I saw oh, I've it, seen that. I saw it when I was four or five, and I've watched it almost every year since. Love the songs in it, and although it's not quite as good as I remembered as a kid, I have to watch it every year. I, I didn't grow up with this one. It's one of those things I kept hearing about, had a bit of a cult vibe. I finally saw it. It is adorable. It yeah, is super yeah. adorable. I can't. I can't. It, it's still not like my fave or anything like that. But that's a very cute film. Um, the last film I will mention is "Remember the Night" from 1940. I saw this for the first time last year. Barbara Stanwyck is arrested for stealing at the start of the film, and Fred McMurray plays the prosecutor, and the trial gets delayed until after Christmas, and he feels bad about her spending Christmas in jail, so he takes her home for Christmas, and it's a fun film. And uh, after their much darker turn in Double Indemnity, it's great to see them uh, together in a lighter, more upbeat film. Um, Yeah, Remember the Night has actually, like, a pretty decent following amongst the Turner Classic Movies crowd. It's never quite mm. gotten mainstream like, you know, It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street or Shop Around the Corner. But um, there's definitely a contingent of people who think that movie is is just the best. Uh, so cool. Uh, okay, I lied. One last movie. I was curious <laughs> if you guys have seen Don't Open Till Christmas. It's an interesting little British slasher. The Vinegar Syndrome release is great. Uh, and the extras are more interesting than the film itself. Uh, have you ever seen Don't Open Till Christmas? No, I was just looking it up because uh, that's one of those films I always saw like on the video store shelf, but yeah. never had the temerity to actually rent. Uh, I've seen Don't Open Till Christmas, uh, and Don't Open Till Christmas is a fascinating mess. It, if you look into the production of that movie, it, it's amazing it got finished. Like There are whole chunks of it that were like made in a different way or with different ideas behind it. The movie is just a huge jumble. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but it is weirdly fun, and I would recommend people see it if you keep in mind that it's... I'm not a big fan of saying, like, it's so bad it's good, but it's really quite bad, and yet it is really quite entertaining. Like, it's weirdly incompetent. That's the way I put it, you know. Yeah. When people say so bad it's good, it means they they recognize that it's of low quality, but they still find... They find it entertaining for reasons beyond the earnest. Yeah. All right. And uh, one little P.S. here. Uh, P.S. Vestron Video released a Blu-ray set last year of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 through 5 with tons of special features. Thanks, guys. Ron from Spokane. Uh, Yeah, I heard about that set, and I've been meaning to pick that up, actually, because I've actually, uh, even though I've done, like, a lot of stuff uh, in the realm of reportage and reviews of Christmas horror movies, I've never seen Silent Night 3 through 5. Or Silent Which, Night Deadly you know, Night the, 3, yeah. the, those, those are, those sequels are fascinating. I'm, I'm a, you know I'm a big fan of 4. Um, Silent Night Deadly Night 4 Initiation, which is not a Christmas movie. Uh, it, it takes place, like, at December, but it's more about, like, this o- oblique Wiccan holiday that they made up for the movie, and it has, like, Roach and snake cults in it. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. It has uh, uh, some really awesome uh, special effects by Screaming Mad George. Uh, sorry about the sound effects. Uh, the last uh, piece of physical mail we have is a package. Oh, all right. Uh, and there's an there's one that says uh, read this first. It's from Robert. 
Uh, if my calculations are correct, you are reading this first. Uh, if you recall a previous year, you got to decide between two gifts to open, and you get to do this once again, and we get to listen to your live reactions. Happy holidays. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so unfortunately, Whitney isn't in the room with me, but we are on video, uh, and he can see what I got here. So let me open this up. Uh, and, ooh, oh, boy, we got gift wrap. That's nice. Exciting. Okay. Exciting. Okay, so uh, there are two gift wrapped uh, items. Uh, one is kind of candy cane gift wrap. Uh-huh. One has Christmas trees on it. Uh, and this is lovely, and you did not have to do this, but thank you. This is very kind. Uh, Whitney, oh, I'm going to let you pick, since you're not here. Would, do you want the candy oh, cane they're, they're or they're not Christmas labeled? Trees? Okay. No, they're candy uh, cane oh, or Christmas tree. First of all, thank you. This is very sweet. You don't have to send us gifts, but you know it's it's incredibly flattering. Yeah. Um, yeah, William's on camera here. I want you to open the candy cane one. Candy cane first. one will be Whitney's. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to try to move this a little further away from the microphone, so... It's not too... No, no, get get that... There's good tearing one, sound effects right up close. <laughs> oh, I think Whitney got a good one. Uh, the uh -oh. Munster's Scary Little Christmas. <laughs> that is so Whitney. That is a great... Ooh, that worked wait, out Wait, wait, wait. Hold, hold up the picture again, because yeah. uh, that, that looks like it's not Fred Gwynn on the front. Uh, is that from, like, the Munster's Today? Hold on, I'm looking here. Um, Was that the the Monsters TV series, like the reboot from the, the I, late it, it 80s? It doesn't say Fred Gwynn on it. Hold on. Get ready for some holiday spirits as the first family of fried celebrates the season in the quirky and hilarious two-hour TV movie, The Monsters Scary Little Christmas. Eddie Munster, played by Bug Hall. Yeah, this is not the same cast. Bug? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> this is Transylvania and clearly doesn't think it's the most wonderful time of the year. So the rest of the Munsters, Herman, played by Sam McMurray, Lily, played by Anne Magnuson, Grandpa, played by Sandy Barron, and Marilyn, played by Elaine Hendricks, rally to make him enjoy the holly jolly magic that santa brings available on dvd not, for the first time ever that's not the cast of the monsters today i don't know because lee yeah, merriweather played lily munster in the monsters today yeah i don't know i don't know i'm fascinated i kind of want this is I, like a this is a new 90s monsters hole yeah <laughs> i was not familiar with please, please don't call it that all right and here's and this one will be mine it's the one that we had christmas trees on it oh my god Oh, this! Oh, I think this worked out good because this is this is even more my jam than yours. It's Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. Is that a movie or a concert film? Uh, I think it's a movie. Uh, here we go. An embittered Scrooge of a woman plans to sell her small town with no regard for how it will affect the townspeople. She just owns the town. As the I hope Dolly's not the Scrooge because I, that is think, bad casting. I think it's Christine Baranski. Okay, she can play Scrooge. Yeah. Oh, she'd be great. She'd actually be really good in Ebenezer Scrooge. She's, you know, I mean, it, she's very talented. It, she can play anything. It's kind of but, where we're uh, going with this. As the sale approaches, right. a kind-hearted angel arrives to persuade her to mend her ways and redeem herself. I guess the budget was too was too small for three different angels, but okay. Uh, can music, <laughs> magic, and memories change your mind? Dolly Parton, Christine Baranski, the late Treat Williams, and Jennifer Lewis star in this Emmy-winning holiday musical. Neat. All right. <laughs> I saw um I saw another Dolly Parton Christmas movie. For, it was like from the eighties, and I really mm -hmm. dug it. It was really fun. Let me see if I can try to bring it up to to recommend it to people. But thank you. Those are really really fun. I'm totally gonna watch mine. Um, Dolly Parton Christmas movies movies plural. Oh my god. There's oh god. There's so many. There's Christmas at Dollywood. A Country Christmas Story. Dolly Parton's coat of many colors. Is is that like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but Dolly Parton? I guess I don't oh, no. know. Oh my god. Okay, well I can't find the one that I saw. She didn't want in like the eighty. Oh, here we go. A Smoky Mountain Christmas. I think that's what it is. Uh, okay. I saw a Smoky Mountain Christmas. Smoky Mountain Christmas. Yeah, it's a TV movie. Uh, stars Henry Winkler, a uh, country singer and a mountain man, played by Lee Majors, rescue seven runaway orphans from a sheriff and a witch. Uh, and it's Christmas. And it's and it's a TV movie from 1986. It also has uh, Dan Hedaya and Renee Auberginois and John Ritter. 
That's okay. a really good cast, and it's a fun movie. You should check that out too. So thank you for the. This is really really neat, and I'm uh, I'm going to see Whitney in person tomorrow, uh, and I'm going to give him his Munsters movie. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for a Monsters movie. It's very sweet. That's very, very nice. That's a nice little, nice little holiday-themed episode. All right. Um, well, I guess uh, that's it for the physical mail. Uh, Whitney, why don't mm-hmm. you... I'm going to move this stuff over here. Okay. I guess, uh, yeah, I guess we'll, uh, we'll pivot back to our usual uh, emails. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, we, and we get emails. We get a lot of emails. And uh, our first email that I'm going to read to you comes from RJ. Hello, RJ. Hi, RJ. Uh, it says, uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney... This is a question for Bibbs. Oh, no. That I kind of wanted to bring up with him on Twitter, but I knew that if I did, it would almost immediately come across as confrontational, as those types of conversations tend to get. So I'm writing it here instead. Fair. Uh, Yeah, you know, personal letters. Better Mm -hmm. than tweets. Nuance Uh, comes across more longer writing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In response to a tweet about about concept art from Spider-Man No Way Home, you said, I have so many problems with this film, I almost envy the people who are able to enjoy it once. And that the second part confused me because I was certain you'd give a film a good review when it came mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. I did a search on Twitter, and you called it the 20th best film of 2021. And in May mm-hmm. this year, you said it was the second best MCU film behind Black Panther. Yeah. Now, I'm not demanding that you feel the exact same way about a movie for the rest of your life. And if mm-hmm. you've soured on, the, on it, then fair enough. But I just found the, the wording of it kind of weird and wanted to ask if you are forgetting just how you felt previously or something else. Okay. Anyway, thanks for the podcast. Hope you're both doing well, RJ. That is a, that is a good catch. Cause I think that that tweet was only up for <clears throat> like a few minutes before I took it down because oh I gosh, realized okay. I screwed up. I oh? thought I was looking at without like, I was just sort of half looking at it. I thought I was looking at a picture of Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness, a movie I did not okay. like a movie. I actively did not like. There's a couple of bits in it that I like, but I remembered being really annoyed by it and i just thought it really didn't do enough with its premise i thought it was structured really poorly uh i hated what it did uh to the character of the scarlet witch uh and i just it it didn't work for me at all uh and i don't know how i screwed it up i think it was just because they were like two multiverse movies that had dr strange in them back to back yeah and i just and yeah they, they are, in their structure, a little similar. They have similarities. Uh, but I, as for No Way Home, I, I do like No Way Home. I think No Way Home, in many respects, is really, really great. I think it has some issues that are kind of endemic to its basic premise. I think it, it kind of struggles to get going. Uh, but uh, once all the Spiders men are there, and once they're like trying to actually... like do the right thing for the villains in that movie. I actually think it's quite lovely. So no, I, that is an excellent catch. And I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure I deleted that tweet. If not, I should have, because I noticed (laughs) that I got the movie wrong. Good catch. That's exactly what I was like. Oh shit. That's not what I meant. Okay. So thank you. Uh, Fair to uh, hold me to task for it. Very fair to hold me to task for that. Well, but to, to, you know, sort of bring up the, the issue of the letter, um, uh, yes, critics actually are allowed to sort of change their stance on certain movies. Uh, we are critics. We want to be listened to. And as such, we also listen to others. Well, at least one would hope that we listen intently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're open to other viewpoints. And we're open to other criticisms. And it can happen where we live with a film for a while or we have conversations with other critics about it and our viewpoints do change. Mm-hmm. Maybe a film we really, really liked when it came out can become one of our least favorite films of the year and vice happen. versa. It can happen. I was so, like, this year, for example, uh, when it came out, I was, I was pretty positive on the movie air and uh-huh. the more I've thought about it since the more I actively dislike most of it. Uh, I think there's <laughs> okay. a good performances in it, but I, I, uh, and yeah, I did not ultimately care for it in the end, but at the time I was charmed by just how well made it seemed to be. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, critics do change their minds. The issue in the email was that I suggested that I had only in, I hadn't even enjoyed seeing the movie in the first place, and that was inaccurate because I was accidentally talking about the wrong movie. Uh, but yeah, I, I've changed my opinion. I've I've come to enjoy movies a lot more than I did in the past. I've uh, uh, got, come to actually like actively dislike movies. I come to have really complicated feelings about movies that I, especially movies that I saw when I was like younger and I didn't really process mm-hmm. or think through from from all the right perspectives. Um, that's part of the learning process. And you're right, as critics, you know, we want people to read our criticism or listen to our criticism, and hopefully, you know, whether or not you agree, whether or not we we affect your mentality, at least hear us out 
Yeah. And we would be massively hypocritical if we weren't willing to do the same. It doesn't necessarily mean we'll change our minds or anything like that, but we're open to having our minds changed. Uh, and I think that's an important part of the process. I think it is important, however, to admit when it happens. You yeah, don't want to sure. double down. You don't want to double down. It's like, no, I'm going to like this movie forever, even though I secretly hate you, you can't. Th- th- that's immature. You just have to admit, all right, it's actually not that great. I, I was... Yeah. Well, Sometimes it's just the, the, a fun movie you saw that day and you really weren't in the mood to really think it through in any greater depth and later on you realize, oh, crap. <laughs> and, and you know, some critics fall into that trap of... Uh, I, I, I guess it's, it's one of the many traps of, like, fandom where mm. you, you love a film, you see it a lot as a child, uh, you kind of put it aside for a little bit and you leave it in this sort of immutable place in your mind that it's yeah. no longer... It, and you start to assume, well, everybody feels the same way about this movie. Let's just start the conversation on the assumption that everyone thinks this one film is great or this one film is terrible. And it's. Or just that our memories anathema. are accurate, you know? And that yeah, can be wrong and, too. you know, that's kind of anathema to criticism and mm-hmm. thinking something out and analyzing stuff. So, uh, I think. Yeah, there are a lot of, lot of, lot of pitfalls, and it's, I think it's perfectly okay for critics and, pe- and non critics alike to mm-hmm. change their thoughts on movies and change their thoughts rather dramatically on movies. And I think it's important that critics give ourselves uh, an opportunity to change our thoughts by relitigating movies mm. whenever we can. Now, obviously sometimes we're just busy and we have to keep watching new movies and it's hard to rewatch old movies, but you know, if they do one of those things where, Oh, the 10th anniversary of this movie comes out and you're like, why are people celebrating that? Wasn't that movie terrible? It might be an opportunity to check it out and see like, okay, well s- people liked something. Yeah. This connected on some level. It might not be a level that you like or respect or or care about, but there may have been something you missed, and that can be really, really good. And also, on the same token, you can look back at a movie, uh, and the addition of 10 years of perspective in your life, in history, whatever, uh, can really change the way you look at it. I would be... I, I think if The Social Network had come out today, the exact movie that it was people would have a different perspective on it. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not saying it, they wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily still be great. Uh, I do think that there are definitely issues with it that people would go like, I don't know, man, knowing what we know about Zuckerberg, this is a weird watch. You know, history can mm. affect that. So yeah. that can be a factor too. Um, got another email? I do indeed. Um, okay. Next letter. Yes. Uh, this is a letter from Wynn. Hello, Wynn. Hi, Wynn. Uh, it says, hi, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. That's us. Uh, I love Christmas movies. Yay! Watched, watched so many before I became old and bitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the ones that I thought were non-traditional, I think, have become traditional through force of will. So here are my f- top five non-traditional Christmas movies. Okay. Uh, number one, Hogfather. Yes. The commentary track for Hogfather. Uh, thank you for doing a commentary on this movie. It's one of my favorite Discworld books, and the movie is del- a delight. Death Becomes Santa is such a great pitch. Mm, it's a um, really fun movie. It's a miniseries, really, but it plays great. It's got a wonderful cast. It's got a lot of combination really, uh, of practical effects and, and CGI that looks really nice. It, it's also really faithful to the book. Like, it has a yeah. lot of the details, right? And and Um, what's weird is that the book is, like, not the first book in that series. There's, like, so much that if you don't read the Discworld books, you're going to have to, like, look up bits of it. Yeah, like, the way way that fantasy world uh, Terry Pratchett invented operates. Yeah, they they don't really bother to, like, bring you into it organically. They just dunk you in the deep end. And it works, but it can be a little overwhelming sometimes. But I like that. I think that could be a really fun approach. Hmm. Uh, number two is Little Women. Insert year here. Uh, I only, I only, only don't think of this as traditional because it's set between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and really might be traditional at this point. But it's, uh, but not the best version, which is the 2019 version. That one will be. <laughs> uh, I love Little Women. I Jillian Armstrong's Little Women with like Winona Ryder and Christian Bale mm-hmm. and uh, Claire Danes and so on. Uh, that came out when I was like in junior high or something, and it was like my favorite thing. It's just mm. such a wonderful, perfect adaptation. And then I rewatched some of the old ones. The Catherine Hepburn uh, version from the 1930s is also delightful and adapts it slightly differently and makes interesting choices. Uh, and then Greta Gerwig came along and did another version 
that is as good, if not better, than the others. Probably better. Like, actually, mm. like, fixed things in the novel while still remaining completely true to the spirit of the novel. Uh, and, like, it, it, none of the changes are like, hey, wait a minute. It's all like, oh, that's better. Yeah, you're right. That makes a lot more sense. So good. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I sometimes forget that's a Christmas movie because, like, parts of it take place at Christmas. And that's okay. I remember when... Um, uh, shortly after the first Harry Potter movie first came out, there was this weird attempt to try to make the first Harry Potter movie a Christmas movie. They would like show it on the air at Christmas because there's like yeah. two scenes there's at Christmas, a, a Christmas scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, no, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> and now I'm saying don't do that for, for other reasons as well. But like, oof, even at the mm. time, anyway, uh, but great movies, all great movies. Yeah. Um, number three is Joyeux Noël. The movie yes. about the Christmas truce of the First World War. It's everything a British war movie wants to be. Um, That's a beautiful I think film. I did see that. Well, yeah, like, it's about, yeah, the, the uh, true story of the Christmas armistice on Christmas Day. The, the Germans and the British decided to stop shooting at each other. In World War I. Yeah. In World War I, yeah. They climbed out of the trenches and just sort of played together for a little bit. And as soon as Christmas was over, they started murdering each other again. So yeah. I, I guess it didn't stick, but at least there was a, a bit of a, a ceasefire. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of magical and kind of sweet. And then it gets real bitter again because it's not a made up fairy tale story. It's a really yeah, terrible yeah. story about the totality of the experience, but what an interesting chapter. And it just really highlights the absurdity of war in its construct. Yeah. Like yeah. there's no reason for us to be doing this. We could just stop doing this. Um, number four is Doctor Who, A Christmas Carol. Yes. Most versions of A Christmas Carol are traditional uh, by definition, but the Doctor knows Charles Dickens using the story on purpose is such a great idea. I have to respect it. Also, that is, the Doctor knows Charles Dickens personally, like has yeah. met him. Yeah, it's true. Uh, also, I, what I, they did for the Ghost of Christmas Future is probably my favorite version of that part of the story. When, when, what era of Doctor Who was this? Because the show's been on for like 60 years. That okay. was the Matt Smith era. Um, they there's been a tradition in Doctor Who, especially since the Russell T Davies years, to do a Christmas special. Uh, it's usually like a big event in some kind. Well, maybe we'll introduce a new character, or just it'll be like kind of more ambitious. There was a really wonderful one with Kylie Minogue as a guest star uh, that was like a Starship Titanic episode, mm -hmm. just delightful. And and also, but it was also like the Poseidon Adventures. It was really great. Um, but uh, that Christmas Carol. Uh, is easily the best Doctor Who Christmas special. And I cry like nobody's business every time I watch it because it's really sad and it's really beautiful and it's also really, really funny. Uh, that one works great. Like, I love mm. I would I could not recommend that more. I love that movie. TV movie, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, number five is Edward Scissorhands. Ah. Uh, Tim Burton directed a fairy tale about how snow was created. You don't get more Christmas than that. Uh, the ones that used to be non-traditional are now, but now are because of fans are uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, yep. Die Hard, and Gremlins. Yep. I assume this is coming out in mid-December. Have a great Christmas. When? Thank you. Happy holidays to you, too. Mm. And, um, yeah, I love Christmas movies. And it is interesting how the Christmas movies that we're seen as kind of like, you know, a little, a little risque, you know, a little like, oh, can you really do a Christmas movie with monsters? Is that allowed? And now we're like, <laughs> yeah, that's one of our favorite Christmas movies. We like that one. So, well, I, I, I talked about this recently about how Bob Clark's film, uh, A Christmas Story, yeah, was meant to be like an anti-nostalgia film. It was about how you you look back on your childhood experiences at Christmas time and it's actually all about how petty and unhappy everybody really is and how uh Christmas is really this kind of corrupt time of uh, of, of greed and backstabbing yeah. and yet it turned into something really traditional and to the point where they like have made musicals about it and they have marathons of it on Christmas day it's like this is supposed to make Christmas look gross yeah it's not not supposed to be a warm film it's about how everything falls apart it's it's a chaos movie what, what's that but what's yeah, that, like, there it is there's like a Twitter meme uh that's uh it's like tech bros rejoice as they finally create the uh, the chaos bomb from the science move from the science fiction movie. Don't make a chaos bomb. <laughs> right. Just over time. It just familiarity, you know, it doesn't, uh -huh. this is familiar, everyone always says familiarity breeds contempt and that's true, 
But familiarity also breeds familiarity, and with familiarity comes uh, just not taking it seriously. And I guess that's yeah, kind of contempt. Yeah. Contempt is sort of like that. But it's just like, yeah, it's just there. It's in the corner. I don't, I don't even notice it anymore, you know? And it could be the most horrible mm. thing in the world. Uh, so, yeah, it's weird how that happens. Anyway, here's another letter about uh, the, our Christmas list. Okay. Um, this comes from Luke. Hello, Luke. Hi, Luke. Um, hello, gentle fellows of my heart. Oh, thank Aww. you. Uh, I was so happy my suggestion for non-traditional Christmas movies got picked in the latest Iron List, so thank you to fellow Patreon voters. Yay! Uh, which I will admit was more than a little self-indulgent on my part because I love otter Christmas movies as much as I do the standards. Hmm. Plus, for the past five years, my friends and I get together to wrap presents and watch non-traditional slash weird Christmas movies, mm. and I wanted to add some future options. Now, a couple of quick notes. I don't remember how I found this out, hmm. but I have a co-worker who is a lifelong friend of David Steinman. The director of Santa's Sleigh. Hey! That is S-L-A-Y. Weird. I immediately asked her to pass along a question of, were all the big name actors from the cold open just you calling in every favor you had? And he said yes. So that explains <laughs> those big gets for the first ten minutes. That makes sense. I, I was very happy Bibbs picked Deadly Games, a.k.a. 3615 Cold Pay Noel, a.k.a. Dial Code Santa Claus, a.k.a. Game Over, a.k.a. Hide and Freak. Um, <laughs> I've rarely seen a movie that looks like a dream without trying too hard to look like a dream. Just a lot of off visuals. I think the lighting in that movie mm. is yeah. like really, really kind of shadowy, and there's like a lot of spotlights up, it, in, the, it, up in the it, ceiling. It's it a, feels like, the because the, the kid like lives in, like a, in that movie, that movie's like... It's in a mansion. Yeah, it, it's kind of like, it's Home Alone before Home Alone, like a couple years before Home Alone, and it's a slightly darker version of it, but it's basically the same thing. Uh, and it's a, but it's more of a horror movie. And he's living. His parents are rich, but even more rich than Macaulay Culkin's parents in Home Alone, who are ridiculously rich, by the way. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, this kid lives in like this mansion, and he's kind of all alone with his grandfather. And you really do get the sense that he's like in a cavernous overbearing landscape. And there's this bit where like he goes <clears throat> into like, he's, he's got like this one room he's taken for himself for all of his toys. And it's gigantic. Mm. Like it's like the TARDIS. It's just like, it's It's, it's huge. There's a sense of scale there. And I think part of it's because the hero is a little kid and everything looks big when you're a kid. And part of it is just trying to create this like larger than life sort of Christmas, magic vibe but it's been subverted and turned evil it's great i love that movie yeah yeah uh let's see P -p pere noel um uh, and finally one personal suggestion blood beat 1982 oh my god i can't uh, believe i forgot blood beat <laughs> a very bizarre horror movie where a guy brings his college girlfriend home for christmas to meet his mom then people start dying because of maybe of a ghost samurai question mark yeah oddly it's maybe unintentionally about women owning their sexuality. It mm. was filmed in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, with a handful of locals. A vast majority of my family is from Wisconsin, but none of us have a thick Wisconsin accent. Still, the accents in this movie feel like a warm blanket to me. As of my <laughs> writing this, it's on Tubi, because of course it is. Uh, <laughs> Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and all that jazz to you and yours, Luke. Uh, uh, yeah, I, Blood I haven't Beat seen that one. Amazing. I haven't seen Bloodbeat, but I know of Bloodbeat. Like, I've, mm. I've heard it mentioned from... Uh, b-movie maniacs that i admire yeah i i have i i've I, i'm actually mad at myself i really should have put blood beat on my list i can't believe i didn't see it i i didn't like pick up on it and make that happen uh there is a movie um uh that uh some people that i know have been like saying should be the next rediscovered weird christmas classic uh, came out in 1998. It's called Fantastic Games, a.k.a. The Golden Grain. Fantastic and games. all I know about it is that it's apparently super duper weird. And when I like looked through, there's like a video of it online. I just sort of skimmed it to see what it was about. It looks surreal as shit. Like it looks weird <laughs> and bizarre. And I can't even get... Like, IMDb is so obscure, IMDb doesn't even have, like, a one-sentence plot description. Like, that's how... That's well, how weird... That's pull, how unusual pull down your uh, Pull down one of your psychotronic guides, because it feels like that... It would be in oh, something maybe. like that. 
Oh, that's, or, oh, shit, that's in the t- other room, yeah. Well, it's 1998. Oh, okay. I think that might be a little too Oh, that, yeah, I think the Psychotronic Guides might have come out before that. But, yeah. Yeah. It's worth uh, checking in case you have, like, an, an, a revised version. Yeah, so if you... If you uh, oh, oh, here we go. Uh, I found yeah. a description. Hmm. It's Christmas, and the snow falls around a house where Mary, a 16-year-old girl, lives with her family. This is just from Letterboxd, by the way. Mm. Um, she is in bed with the flu, and is, and beside her is Kevin, her little brother, Nancy, her mother, and her grandfather. Kevin suggests opening Christmas presents, and among other gifts, Mary finds a fairy tale that Kevin begins to read. In space, the dwarf castle <laughs> is threatened by the planet of the Black Fortress. The king of the castle is very concerned about the danger, so he requests the help of Jade, the Queen of Hope. And as soon as she receives the message, he sets out for the Black Fortress to save her friends. But the only reward that the king can offer is a grain of wheat. Jade arrives at the fortress in front of uh, in front of which is Makeb, an evil being, where she will be involved in a computer game directed by the evil Makeb and his soldiers, in which she will be attacked by fireballs and laser rays, etc. So it's okay. about a fairy tale. Yeah, that turns into and a video in game. In the fairy tale, it there's a video game. All right, don't don't read any more. Stop drilling. You've struck oil. I'm going to watch this this season. <laughs> but yeah, that's a very very strange thing. All right. Um, is yeah, that there's I, a more to the email? I got to see this movie. That sounds fun. Uh, no, that's the, the last of okay. email. So I'll all right, I think we have time for a few more. Uh, um, I like the title of this one, so I'm going to read this email because okay. the title is Whitney was right. Ooh. Uh, this comes from Eric. Uh, okay. Gentle beings. I was listening to an old episode the other day where Whitney stated that quote you have to see Star Wars by a certain age to become a fan, citing as evidence that he was 18 when he first saw it. Though I agreed with the assertion, I decided to get some quantifiable evidence. To that end, I posted a poll in the Star Wars Minute Listener Society group, asking how old were you when you first first saw your first Star Wars movie. As of a few minutes ago, and this was written a couple days ago, uh, the poll reached 100 respondents and 85% were 10 years old or younger, and the third highest percentile being 11 to 16. Having been a fan of the podcast and a member of the group for years, I can attest the attest these folks are more than casual fans so yes whitney was right with proven data (laughs) yes the the numbers back me up um that makes sense to me his borderline pathological hatred for disney though not misguided (laughs) will prove harder to verify (laughs) cheers eric um i I wonder what i'd be curious about is on top of that i would i would love to get more data about this because I'm also curious, uh, not just like what, when you first saw Star Wars, whether it was one of the movies or one of the TV shows or whatever, because, you know, there are people who are like full grown adults now who grew up with the Clone Wars. Like that, uh-huh. that's been around for a while. Um, I would also be curious what your first Star Wars was and how okay. much of a fan you are. Like, was your first Star Wars the animated Clone Wars? Did you see that before you saw the prequels? Because with that added context, the prequels do change. Was it the prequels themselves? Was it the original movies? Did you see them out of order? Did you did you chance upon Return of the Jedi before you saw Star Wars Episode Four? Uh, I'd be very curious about all of this because I, as I've mentioned before, have had, had like a weird experience where I saw on TV Empire and Jedi multiple times before I saw A New Hope once, and I was fine with it. Like, I uh-huh. particularly was a big fan of Empire. I just really dug its vibe. It was it, it kind of like it, it, seeing like a middle chapter that kind of doesn't have a proper beginning and definitely doesn't have a proper end as a whole movie was like really exciting to me as a kid. And seeing the beginning after like, I don't know, it was like eight or nine by that point, I finally saw A New Hope and I was like, yeah, it's okay. It's pretty cool. Mm. It's pretty cool. Which one um, is that? Which one what? Which one was pretty cool? Oh, A New Hope. Oh, okay. When I finally saw A New Hope, because I'd seen Empire and Jedi at least five or six times each, just because they were on TV yeah. a lot. And then, I, but my uh, my brother found out I'd never seen A New Hope, and he was like, what? And he abandoned me. He was supposed to be babysitting me, and he left, walked to Tower Records, which, by the way, at the time, two miles. <laughs> He walked two miles there and back. So that's four miles total. So he could Mm -hmm. rent Star Wars and bring it back to watch it. So he left me alone, unattended, when I was like eight or nine, when he was not supposed to, because Star Wars. Which he saw, Uh by the way, like in theaters when he was like five. 
Yeah. Which explains, perhaps, the intense passion. So. <laughs> but anyway, but then I saw the movie and like, it's okay. And he was like, I yeah, walked four yeah, miles! I, I know that there's a lot of people who, um, who are a lot younger than us who f- didn't see a Star Wars film until uh, The Phantom Menace came out mm. in, in the, the late 90s. Mm. And I think as a result, that film, like 20 years on, started to get this really serious uh, relitigation. Uh, the Phantom Menace was one of the most hated movies of a generation. I remember mm. how much people turned on that movie. Just this enormous. It was hugely successful, and then yeah. the backlash brief- was even bigger. It was briefly uh, it was- popular. Like Roger Ebert gave it like four stars. No, he gave it three three stars. Did he give it three? Because I remember he was big on it. Um, he but, gave it a positive review, but I don't think he gave yeah. it four stars. Interesting. We'll look that up. But, um, but yeah, no, I feel like the initial response was like, oh, this is, you know, there's a lot of innovation and visual effects. There's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of visual wonders about, and mm-hmm. it's kind of neat to have Star Wars back. And then it was after it had been out for a little while that more than a few people started saying, hey, wait a minute, none of that works. Like, it's a little dazzling, but none of it makes sense and functions, and a lot of the dialogue's really bad, and there are some things that they really, really didn't realize were, hopefully didn't realize, were kind (laughs) of racist, and like, yeah, yeah, that weird views on topics like slavery. Like, it's it's a weird fucking film in a lot of ways. And the other prequels had the same thing. They would come out, people would be like, ooh, neat! And then shortly after, it was like, hey, wait a minute. No, 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 no. <laughs> and well, I there was even a documentary that... film out there called oh, God, The People vs. George Lucas, which was yeah, all that about... Was... Yeah. That ba- it was all about sort of the... It, it was an interesting documentary because it did trace sort of the the mm-hmm. estimation of Star Wars in the public eye through that period. It came yeah. out in like the mid tens. So it's not entire. It no, didn't I, follow I remember, up until yeah. uh, all of the, like the Disney buying out Star Wars. That wasn't part of the film. No, but, that hadn't happened yet. No, I, I remember when that came out and I knew some people who had been like interviewed for it actually. And I, I don't think time has been kind to that enterprise, the people versus George Lucas, because I think, well, that movie could have been, uh, a commentary about, uh, you know, sort of film toxic criticism fandom, versus firm yeah. films. And it could have been about toxic fandom like if they'd been self-aware enough. I don't think they were. I think that movie w- was, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it actually had tangible impact, but historically you look back at it and you go, this is kind of where the, like, the last Jedi backlash got legitimized. Like, that kind of, like, weird entitlement and control over a thing. Because, look, well, say that, it that's sucks all you was, want, but yeah. like, but it's a matter of... But there was a vibe uh, uh, over those prequels. And when I was you know, younger and less mature, I, I was not as aware of how toxic this was. Um, that was, like, George Lucas is hack, and he really sold out. And honestly, to an extent... He, he did sell out. He literally sold Star right, Wars no. to Disney. But, like, there he, well, was... Well, he sold out and also, yeah. you know, you, you look back on sort of his early career and how much he hated the Hollywood system and wanted to do yeah. things uh, sort of a little bit more daring, a little bit on, on his own, you know, marched to the beat of his own drum, wanted to be a lot more idiosyncratic and experimental. Yeah. And Star Wars ruined him. It became such a commercial success mm. that uh, he kind of... He, he hasn't made a non-Star Wars film since. Uh, yeah, you know, not as a director. I, I, I wished yeah. he could have. I wish he could write and direct some yeah. like interesting non-fantasy films, but he just sort of got I, trapped I by that. I don't know where his uh, headspace is anymore. There's an amazing, by the way, there's an amazing video essay by Jesse Gender and Aranok uh, that came out of, uh, mm. a few days ago by, by, by the time we were recording this. Called oh, I love the, Jesse Gender so yeah, much. It's called The Decaying Monomyth of Star Wars. It is nearly six hours it. long, by the way. So, oh my god! So, so watch it in chunks. There are chapters. It's okay. You don't have to okay. watch it all at once, but it's worth it. Okay, there, there's such things good. being too thorough, but all right. I, I don't know, man. If, if if um oh, who's that one documentarian who makes like ten hour movies about? Oh, I just like, mentioned him, uh, Frederick Wiseman. No, not Frederick Wiseman. Not Frederick Wiseman. The guy who does all the stuff for PBS. Oh, you're talking um, uh, um the Civil War guy. Yeah. Um, Ed, not Ed Burns. Um, no, Ken Burns. Ken Burns. Yeah, Ken Burns. If Ken Burns can do like a ten-hour documentary about how much he likes baseball, 
uh, I think it's okay to do a six-hour documentary uh, absolutely stunningly deconstructing the entire Star Wars franchise and how, A, its idea of this uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, hero's journey is frankly dated and was never really all that solid to begin with and was and was often self-contradictory, uh, but also how the film's attempts to engage with politics are very strange and mm -hmm. often, again, self-contradictory. And it's a really, really great documentary, and it's a great bit of criticism because it engages with what works about Star Wars and what doesn't. Okay. It's very even-handed, I think. I think it ultimately, like, it gets more critical uh, as it goes on. Because mm -hmm. uh, it's talking about more and more, uh, you know, controversy and things. But uh, it's a stunning work, and I, I highly recommend it. It is really, 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 really good. Yeah. So if you yeah, if you have the time over the holiday break or something, make the time. It's fantastic. But uh, to go back for a second to uh, the People versus George Lucas, um, mm -hmm. I think it does bring up uh, something that is still being discussed and and. Uh, mold over in the popular consciousness and it's this idea of ownership of a certain yeah. property this idea that uh, a filmmaker or an artist or, or a studio because that's the modern thinking mm -hmm. can make something really exciting that a huge audience likes and the fans declare that it belongs to them mm-hmm and not to an artist or a studio any longer. And they demand that it be a certain way. Mm. And, you know, that, that of course has given rise to what you were talking about, this kind of really dark toxicity that you see online a lot, this kind of yeah. entitlement that is, is really horrible. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who aren't toxic or horrible who actually share that view, who feel that well, uh, a work of art does belong to the people. And I think this is why we need to sort of change public domain laws so things can mm -hmm. go into the public domain a lot quick more quickly yeah. uh, as of january 1st mickey mouse will be in the public domain only finally the steamboat version only the steamboat willy version but you know steamboat killy is right there somebody make a horror <laughs> make a horror movie right away yeah the point you bring up about uh, that sort of fan ownership and like this is mm. these are our movies not yours anymore is i think that's actually a very straightforward uh academic uh archival question that has been framed in kind of a selfish way because yeah. I, I don't think it's a matter of these are our movies, we own them. You, you don't own them. I mean, technically, unless they're public domain, you don't own them. But uh, what you do have is access to, at the very least in your memories, a different version. You know, like, let's uh, uh, look at look at what Star Wars did with special editions, for example. Like, those are the original versions of the movies and then he changed them. In the 90s. And this is actually something that they talk about in the, the decaying monomyth of Star Wars. Uh, and, and it's... What's interesting is that there, the argument is, well, uh, George Lucas is the artist. He's allowed to change them, right? But mm. there's a couple of issues with that. One, he wasn't the only artist. A lot of artists work on that worked on those movies. Those were collaborations, and he didn't collaborate with all the original people. And secondly, even if they did, he did it decades later. He's a different person. He's not mm -hmm. the, like, spunky, young, up-and-comer challenging the system anymore. He's now a billionaire. Yeah. He's not the same artist making the same movies, so replacing the special editions, like, replacing the original versions with the special editions, is, I think, a, an actual real issue. I think it's an actual real problem. I do think it's bad. Because you're... It, it's one thing to make them. It's another thing to never release the old ones. To mm -hmm. make sure people don't see them. I think that is erasing history. I think that's crap. It's not a matter of ownership. It's about, let's look at the original work of art. Because the original work of art that people fell in love with, the original work of art that won all those awards, is not the one we have now. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's about, like, hey, let's take all the new stuff away from them. That's, that's a separate thing. But I do think there are legit, you know, it, in respect to film history conversations to have that aren't about taking them away from Lucasfilm. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I, I would like to think some of them are common sense, you know, sort of conversations about history and the preservation of history, but... Yeah, anyway. History, the preservation of history, and popular perception of popular works of art, uh, and how a popular perception 
and a certain kind of view from a certain kind of fan group or just from a certain audience in general mm-hmm. can affect the way a film is archived and presented and talked about. Mm-hmm. And, and I sure. feel like that conversation is lurking around the edges of something like The People versus George Lucas, even though that's a, a really kind of crass college kid kind of a flick. Mm. Agreed. All right. Um, all right. Well, listen, I think that's, uh, is that it for today? Oh, uh, I, I could read one more. What do you think? Let's have one more. We have one more. All right. Let's do one more. Uh, here's one from Ray. Hello, Ray. Um, I wasn't well enough to make all my usual Christmas cards this year, so I'm sorry I didn't send one this time. But I still wanted to write and wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and Happy New Year. Aww. Well, thank you. It's very That's sweet very nice. of you. Um, I got a huge laugh when you were talking about Miyazaki's films in the latest episode of Critically Acclaimed and trashed the original English dub of My Neighbor Totoro. That was the dub I grew up with, lol. (laughs) I own a copy of it on DVD and to this day, which is actually kind of neat since you can't find it so easily now. I've tried to listen to the newer dub and it made me viscerally uncomfortable sitting there trying to listen to it as if it just wasn't what I grew up with. Totally willing to accept that my judgment on this uh, on this is skewed through a thick lens of nostalgia and is in no way based on logical criticism. I'll try someday to give it another chance. I wish you and your family as well. Give the kitties treats for me, and thank you for all, right. all the podcasts. Much love from Ray and Cheerio. Well, thank you, Ray. Thank um, you, and I am going to feed yeah. those cats in just a minute, even though it's quite late. I'm going to give them treats. You say these are for yeah, Ray. It's, yeah. I know there's been a lot of controversy over the years, uh, especially as it comes to uh, animated films from overseas. Uh, Do you watch the subtitled version or do you watch the dubbed version? And for many years, and I'm still kind of a hardliner when it comes to subtitles, I try to avoid dubbed versions. It's less noticeable with animation. Often in animation, a voice track will be recorded first and mm-hmm. then the animation will be uh, altered to fit the actor's performance. Mm-hmm. But that's not always the case with yeah. anime, uh, because they know it's going out to an international audience, so they kind of oh. animate the way they animate, and the voice actors kind of sync up uh, regardless of the language. And, so yeah, and getting audience, a, yeah that, that's true. That's true, honestly, throughout the rest of the world, honestly. The idea that dialogue mm-hmm. needs to sync up perfectly is not true for a lot of other countries and cultures, live action and animation. There, there's a little yeah. less attention paid to that because it's less, it's considered less important. But, uh, but yeah, it's so, uh, there. I think when they pay attention to the dub, I think it's really important to get a good translation. You mentioned that in the uh, English language dub of Princess Mononoke, which was written by Neil Gaiman, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they changed one the relationship between two characters in dialogue. Like rather mm-hmm. than being uh, a wife, it was a sister. A fiance, but a sister. A yeah. fiance, yeah, yeah. And that and that changed the and because a lot of the rest of the movie equated the protagonist's relationship to the title character to that relationship, which is only in one scene at the beginning of the movie. Uh, all of a sudden, we're associating Princess Mononoke and the protagonist's relationship as non-romantic. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if you're associating it with the original version, you would assume more romance. Yeah, so there but... actually is a, a, a distinct uh, uh, change, a distinct uh, alteration in the interpretation of the text. Yeah, even yeah, though it seems small. It, it's so bizarre that they would choose to do that in in the dub. I'm not sure if it was a timing thing or what motivated that know. decision, but. Uh, I don't know. But I can understand the the need to go back to a bad dub. Uh, when I was in high school, I was very fond of a movie, and I gave my VHS away, and I regret this. Hmm. I, like, I, well, I lent it to somebody, and they asked, "Hey, could I keep it for a little while longer?" And they ended up keeping it for like thirteen years. And then never I just never give heard away from a work of art that you don't expect yeah. to not get back. So yeah. uh, I I uh, I lent them a copy of the Twelve Tasks of Asterix. Uh, Ooh. Which, um, I'm a big Asterix fan. I I traveled when I was a teenager. I discovered Asterix books that were translated into English. If you are going to get them in English, get the Antea Bell and Derek Hockeridge British translations. Do not get the American translations. They suck. Um, Noted. But I had this VHS copy of this French animated film that had been dubbed into English. The English language dubbing was very strange. It had these really broad... uh, voice performances doing the English language uh, track 
I can't watch that with the French subtitle or in French with English subtitles now. <laughs> I have to watch that bad dub because that's the one I watched the most when I was in high school. That's the one I'm fond of. That's the uh, reality, it, and everything else that, is an yeah. alteration. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I I can totally understand that even if you can objectively listen to a bad dub, if it's the one you knew. Yeah. And it's the one that made you fall in love with the film, then there wouldn't be anything wrong with it. That's how I feel about the original English language dub of Akira. Uh, mm-hmm. The dub that they replaced it with, I think in like the early 2000s or something, is good. It's really, really good. And in some respects, it's actually a lot more sort of clear about what's going on. But the abstractness and the strangeness of uh, the original and how they really didn't care if you were caught up with what's going on, it's going to happen anyway. Again, dropping you to the deep end, something I've always enjoyed. Um, I'm a little more fond of that original dub. But then again, I haven't heard it now in at least 15 years. So maybe it's not as good as I remember. But every time I do hear the new dub, every time I watch Akira now, I always think to myself, it sounds a little off. (laughs) Sounds a lot. Well, now I watch it with the subtitles. But every time I get a glimpse of the the dub, it sounds a little off. But yeah. 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 Um, All right. Well, that is it for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Thanks for writing in. Thank you for these presents. That's really nice of you. That's very cool. You did not have to do that, and we deeply appreciate it. Very, very much appreciated. Thank you so much. And thank you for uh, uh, joining us. Thank you for supporting the show. Uh, If you want to write in for a future episode, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah, you can find us on the social medias, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, over at our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you can uh, get this episode and all of our future episodes ad free. You have access to a lot of our exclusive podcasts, some of which have like back catalogs of over 100 episodes. So it's like a huge, uh, uh, like a huge gift that keeps on giving. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we do hangouts. And uh, we also, as we mentioned here, you know, we have like votes for things like future episodes of the Iron List. So uh, again, Thank you, everybody. You're wonderful. You mean the world to us. Uh, we hope if you're listening to this in a timely manner, you have a happy holidays. Uh, if you're listening to this after the holidays, we hope you had a happy holidays. Or if you don't mm-hmm. celebrate any holidays, we hope the end of your December was great. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, yeah, and we'll see you uh, later on with more shows and stuff. So thank you once again. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>